Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to a special edition of The Economist Asks. It's the first in a two-part series exploring the nature of human creativity, its value, and how we might all get better at it. So we should introduce ourselves. I'm Anne McElvoy. And I'm Lane Green. And on this voyage from Economist Radio, we'll be picking apart one of the most discussed but elusive elements of human behaviour. People are opening up the debate about what creativity is and what it isn't. And that debate is happening everywhere. It's happening in science, in business, in education and in politics. Welcome to Creativity Explained. Time for the big trailer. I think that sounds great. It's exactly what I need to do. But what I'm worried about is what if there is a sort of stock of creativity and people have a certain amount of it? No, 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 no. Bullshit. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. You do not have a certain amount of it and suddenly it's all used up. That's patently ridiculous. Does having the musical ability of a great pianist like Vladimir Horvitz or even a Beyonce or a Bono make it more likely that someone will have more sexual partners and maybe even more children? So what we found was that people who reported they had high music achievement, so they had international or national success, the males were more likely to have more children, but not the females. You are three people at once. You are the person who comes up with a plan about how to play. That's the planning part. You have the person who's executing, which is the person who is in the moment and have to focus on the moment and play the notes. And you have the third person who is sitting slightly like apart from you because they're observing, understanding what has happened and understanding if it came out as planned and then feedback that information into the first person. Then you just have this loop of circle that adjusts, adjusts, adjusts. And the thing is that creativity is the concept of the moment. People are thinking much more about what it is in detail, both the science behind it, but how it works in practice. And it's also being looked at by companies, by organisations, eager to enhance the creativity of those who work for them. That's right. So our understanding of creativity is no longer just limited to music or painting or sculpting, but to all kinds of other domains. Still, we are going to start with a bit of basic creative mastery. How do you run 10 fingers across 88 keys to create something like this? Now, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the role of creativity in learning and playing a musical instrument. But not just any instrument, we have chosen the piano. Let's go back to basics and look at some of our assumptions about creativity. At the beginning of our lives, every child is born with an innate ability to be creative. 
We take a set of cranes on a piece of paper and freewheel around the page or the living room wall. We bang randomly on a toy glockenspiel and create something which, to our infant ears, is a wondrous sound. But then as we grow, we start to learn that musical experimentation, all that creativity, isn't just about random notes anymore. It's about connecting emotionally, exploring the limits of the musical form and creating something that to our adult ears now sounds like a thing of beauty and of admiration. And that brings us to our first witness. James Rhodes is not your typical concert pianist. He's a former banker and he didn't perform his first public recital until 2008, aged 33. Now he's signed to Warner Brothers, he's released four albums and he plays sold-out concerts. His one-man mission is to help reignite that creative spark by getting you and me behind a piano. He's written a book called, unsurprisingly, How to Play the Piano. It's primarily a kind of physics problem, you know, which finger goes where and how do you do it? So, for example, with this piece, which everyone knows, there's so many different ways of playing it. You can go like Glenn Gould and go... Which I'm not a huge fan of, to be honest, even though I love Glenn Gould. Or you can go slightly more gentle with a bit more pedal. Which I think is really rather beautiful, and it's not particularly hard. And then you can do everything in between, you can do a mixture. It's entirely up to you. It's a way of expressing on the inside things that really you can't express with words. You know, there are no lyrics, and you're left with this kind of naked, exposed form that goes underneath words and kind of burrows into your soul. And the idea that you can just fling that out into the ether is, for me, it's quite miraculous. It's, it's, it's a magic trick that still amazes me today. But what I'm wondering is, where does the creativity figure in this? Because what you've described is that you've chosen a piece that's... Mm-hmm learnable Mm -hmm. and if I put in my hard work it's going to come out sounding quite good I hope a bit better than quite good you think it'll sound better than quite good I think the more you play it and the more you focus the better it will get it's like anything else isn't it the more you practice I mean it's annoying but that's just the sad truth isn't it everything now has been taken over by you know the commute and work deadlines and having to do five things at once so we're tweeting and we're watching TV and at the same time we're ordering dinner and doing our banking and sending emails and it's too much We have to learn to just slow down. And something like this, learning an instrument or learning to dance or photography or cooking, it's a way of doing that. It's a way of kind of going inside of ourselves rather than looking outside. There's this great story of this kid who's painting a picture of God, I think. And the teacher said, what are you doing? He said, I'm painting a picture of God. And they said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And he just goes, oh, well, they will soon. Just that absolute belief that, yeah, well, this is obviously what God looks like because that's, you know, what's coming out. And it's the same thing. It gets kind of beaten out of us as we get older and and we experience life more but we can always sounds very hippie-ish but we can always reconnect with that part of ourselves and learning an instrument is is really for me it's the perfect way of doing it when you sit down oh and it's straight back to being eight with my piano teachers who were called muriel and sissy yeah of course they were you want to put your third finger and your thumb he's not interested in my life my childhood experiences of trauma so third left left. nice and slow 
It's terrifying, utterly terrifying. The fingers, the brain, the sense of a forbidding presence, judging my feeble plodding across the keyboard. And the right hand. Very simple C major. That's it. Okay, come on, Anne. Were your teachers really called Muriel and Sissy? No word of a lie, Lane. Yes, they were, and they were quite brutal. A rhetorical slap across the knuckles every time I got a sequence wrong. Exasperated cries for me, deep worries about my grade seven. These are scars that stay with you, I can tell you. So, flash forward, it's three decades on. What you're hearing right now is my first piano lesson since those early encounters with Muriel and Sissy. Well, think about it. It's 35 bars. Really? And we've done one bar in 90 seconds. That's it. What happens next? So it repeats again. It's very simple. It's something to enjoy. It's not something to kind of castigate yourself and berate yourself over. And it has to be done a certain way. Otherwise, you're going to get a rap on the knuckle. You know, you're not eight years old with a nasty teacher. You're an adult who can just enjoy doing this. And actually, then in six weeks, you're at someone's house and there's a piano and they say, does anyone play the piano? You can smile and sit down and say, actually, I play a bit of bar and play them that. And everyone will think, fuck, that's amazing. What an amazing thing to have done. So as I understand what James was saying, there's mastering the skill, just getting your fingers in the right place and playing the right notes. But then there's that creative element of deciding on an interpretation. He called it something like flinging it out into the ether from there. And that's the tricky bit for me to understand. Well, yes, he did. And as he put it to me in no uncertain terms, if you remember, creativity isn't limited. There's no finite pot. But what we do need is space and time to connect to it. Clear the desk. Creativity's coming. I've been working on this from a different angle. If we can figure out what's happening upstairs in the brain while creativity is occurring, then surely we can train ourselves to think that way. Could this hold the key to creativity? Now I'm going to introduce the work of Aaron Berkowitz. He's an accomplished pianist who has a PhD in music from Harvard. But interestingly for us, he's also a neuroscientist. I should say we weren't trying to find the creativity area or the creativity network, some magical area that hadn't been discovered before. We were looking to see what areas of the brain are involved and what those areas do under other circumstances to better understand what's necessary uh, for creativity. In Aaron's book, The Improvising Mind, Cognition and Creativity in the Musical Moment, he looks at which areas of the brain are most active in the process of improvisation and what this can tell us about creativity. So how on earth do you go about that then, Lane? It's easy. You just strap both musicians and non-musicians into a magnetic resonance imaging machine. That's what you and I would call an MRI. And then you ask them to improvise a performance. Probably the most interesting was this finding of the inferior frontal gyrus, because the area involved is an area very involved in spoken language and in perception of grammatical structure of language, a region that we know is involved in creativity and generativity in language uh, appears to be involved when we have generativity in music. So we thought this argued against the idea that we have a language-specific region there, but we have a domain-general region able to generate uh, sequences, novel sequences in real time, and whether those sequences are linguistic or musical, it seems to be able to, to perform in both. 
So I think I get this. We're looking for that eruption of multicoloured fairy lights flashing in the frontal lobe of the brain. Am I right? Well, that's almost right. You've seen a lot of these flashing fairy lights in scientific articles about different bits of the brain. But perhaps the most intriguing thing that Aaron found was not which areas light up, but those which stay dark, which were being deactivated in the process of improvisation. When we told the non-musicians they were going to be doing this, they said, well, I'll do it, but the melodies aren't going to be very good. I, I don't know anything about music. And we said, that's fine. Just make up as many you know, interesting combinations of notes as you can. And what was interesting is when we looked at the actual strings of notes that they came up with, the musicians and non-musicians had the same percent novelty of their sequences. So they both did the task. Now, there's no way to sort of judge which ones were better melodies and which were worse, but as far as novelty and creativity, um, they seemed to be the same. So what we thought was that network of regions I described before must be more highly activated in the musicians. They were sort of using these organs for generativity and selection that we think underlie the creative process. But we were actually wrong about that, and there was no difference in activation in those areas. The only difference, musicians were deactivating a particular area, and that area is called the right temporoparietal junction. Now this is an area that's involved in a particular type of attention and also gets shut down in a different type of attention. So one way to think about it is if you think about an archer using a bow and arrow and trying to hit a target. So there are many aspects that they need to pay attention to. How much tension is in the bow? Where is the target? How fast is the wind blowing? What direction is the wind blowing? Those are all things to pay attention to. But if the moment they release, are about to release the arrow, they hear a bird chirp and they look away, they're going to miss the target. So the temporal parietal junction on the right would be looking out for things like the bird chirping, things that are novel to pay attention to in the environment. But during that process, the, the archer would want to shut down that region and pay much more attention to things only related to the task, what we call top-down attention. So what does it mean that the improvising musicians, who were essentially doing the same thing with respect to what their hand was doing as the non-musicians, what does it mean that they were deactivating this area? It suggests to us that they were entering some type of special attentional state so that when they were focused on this task, they were tuning everything else out so they could focus on being creative. And again, we didn't find a magical creative or improvising or talent area here as in the other experiment. We found an area that we all have and that we all use, but musical training seemed to allow musicians to harness this area to focus in a particular way. Do you have any idea whether that ability can be trained, whether you can learn to kind of silence this part of the attentional system that is overactive maybe in people who aren't good improvisers, but which is quietened in the focused mind of a really good improviser? Is it a matter of endless practice? Is it a matter of meditation? Is, it, is there anything that you can do to, to quiet that bit that maybe is detracting from your ability to improvise? So we know that musical training uh, does have effects on the brain in terms of both structure and the ability to sort of bring in different regions of the brain to perform the same tasks in an expert as opposed to a non-expert. And this gets us back to the same questions we've been, we've been asking our musicians born with a certain uh, set of aspects of the brain that make them more likely to be successful at music and become uh, more talented and are more likely to practice and others not. Most of the research suggests that that's not the case, that as people train in music, they develop these connections and they develop the ability to uh, bring in these areas. So presumably with the right focus, the right practice, and the right training, we can all train these areas that are involved in many processes in everyday life, but can also be harnessed for, for creativity.
Okay, so Elaine, what Erin is saying is that in order for me to succeed at playing the piano well and with real creative flair, it's less to do with plugging in certain parts of my brain, more about my ability to switch off the right areas when I play. That's right. And Aaron believes that that ability can be trained up in all kinds of people and not just those who are born with a special ability. So in his view, it's a case of mastering a technique. And that backs up your theory from James Rhodes. Sounds like good news to me. So with enough practice, I can switch off the right part of my brain and perhaps begin to tackle something very difficult from the classical repertoire with genuine expressiveness and hopefully sound like this. Wu playing an excerpt from Gaspard de la Nuit by Ravel. Listening to this mesmerizing rendition of one of the most difficult pieces in the piano repertoire, I've wondered how much what Aaron said about the right training and practice is true, but I also asked myself how much where we're from can help inform the creative process and whether the exposure to, say, a range of different cultural practices can enhance our creativity. Dai Wu entered Beijing's Central Conservatory at the age of 12. She made her professional debut at 14 with the Beijing Philharmonic. Then she moved to the United States to attend several institutions, including the Curtis Institute and the world-famous Juilliard School in the heart of Manhattan. I basically came from China where we do what the professor says. And then the first year at Manhattan School of Music, uh, Zanon Fishburne is my teacher, who had a little bit of a mix. He did tell me what to do at the same time when I push back, but if I have a good reason for doing so, he allowed me. For example, I remember I said, I want to learn Scarborough from Ravel, uh, Gaspard de la Nuit. And he's like, sure, you can try. Like normally in China, they probably wouldn't let me, but here they were like, yeah, you can try it. So <laughs> I did. And I learned in like three days or something. I be, one of the reasons is because I have no idea how hard it is. And that's uh, it's always good when you have no fear. But yeah, so you see that there was a mix of teaching method. The first year I was in Manhattan, when I was at Curtis, Gary Grafman, who is my teacher there, he allowed me with a lot more choices. So you can pick your repertoire, you can, you know, decide how to move forward, how fast, this timeline of learning. So in terms of creativity, I think the way I see about music or music performing in general is a structure with flowers inside. The, the flowers can grow, obviously, and can grow in any direction they want. But if they were planted within that structure, there is, you know, limited number of options they can grow outside from. Because at the end of the day, uh, with classical music in particular, we are not really free to explore any kind of notes we want, any kind of rhythm we want, any kind of dynamics we want. There is a pre-existing structure that we should follow and respect. And, you know, as we always teach, it's about translating the composer's uh, vision, in a sense, with your own interpretation. So therefore, I see performing classical music as in that the structure or the, the box is the composer's voice. And then you are the flowers inside that you can grow, but within that structure.
you've played around the world, I think everywhere from Moscow to Mexico and Tokyo onwards. How do you prepare for concerts in front of vastly different audiences, very different social situations? Take us through what goes through your mind when you're on stage in front of thousands of people. It's just black down there. (laughs) When you are on stage, when the light is on, it's really just between you and piano. I, re- I remember Leon Fleischer had this uh, this statement, I think it's absolutely true, is that when you perform, you're three people at once. You are the person who comes up with the plan about how to play. That's the planning part. You have the person who's executing, which is the person who is in the moment and have to focus on the moment and play the notes. And you have the third person who is sitting slightly like apart from you because they're observing, understanding what has happened and understanding if it came out as planned, and then feedback that information into the first person. Then you just have this loop of circle that adjust, adjust, adjust. But again, like the preparation, and it's highly dependent on how well you know the piece. If you're performing a piece for the first time, most of your brain power goes to techniques, tempo, and memorization. If you perform the piece for the hundredth time, then the majority of focus becomes Make sure that you focus and don't let your brain slip. And two is about how to stay creative even though you're playing it for the hundredth time. Now, a few years ago, Dai Wu did something extraordinary. Alongside her globetrotting classical music career, she started studying for a business degree. Last year, you received your MBA from Columbia, from the business school. Uh, Sounds like a completely different side of the brain, but am I wrong? Did learning the piano then help you in that different, more sort of very practical act to play the piano, but the sort of pragmatic world of what it takes to to walk out of a leading business school with an MBA? It's a question I had to ask myself many times. I think one of the things we don't realize about playing piano at a young age. And I know there are studies proving that, and I personally feel that, is that when you study an instrument such as piano that require an absolute coordination between the left and the right side of the brain, as well as coordination in your fingers and feet and all that stuff, the way you process information is highly connected when you look at a large concerto that happens for 40 minutes. How do you take it apart? You learn page by page, you learn it and you see the movements and then you take it apart and you learn. It's not too far from when you look at a very complicated business problems, you need to dissect it and solve it each piece by piece in a very structured and execution and goal-oriented way. So it's really interesting that I see a very close correlation between conquering or learning and um, executing a piece of music, not not too far from the way you will process a business problem. You've been listening to Creativity Explained, presented by Lane Green, that's me. And Anne McElvoy, that's me. Our producer is Craig Smith. It's a Whistledown production for Economist Radio, exec produced by David Prest. 
And if you've any creative thoughts you'd like to share with us, do send them over. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or send us an old-fashioned email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 